mean, I think I will always ride, but at the moment I don't have a, a bike here. I've got a Honda Cub, which is off-road. And the last time I actually sat on a bike was my last expedition, which was just before COVID, when I did a um, two-month expedition through the mountains along the Indo-Myanmar border. And I got off my bike at the, in the end of December 2019, and I haven't sat on a bike since. I have never ridden a bike in the UK very much at home. I... I've always ridden abroad in far off places where there's not much traffic and I've had bikes here a bit but I just the thrill for biking the thrill for me is biking in the mountains. That was the voice of author Antonia Bolingbroke Kent and this is Ted your host here on the Motorcycle Man podcast and this is episode 284. It's Motorcycle Man. Today's interview is with Antonia, or Ants, as she likes to be called, and she's the author of A Short Ride in the Jungle, The Ho Chi Minh Trail by a Motorcycle. So stick around and enjoy this great interview with an amazing woman. And the Motorcycle Man Podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. They offer high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. So to learn more, you want to go visit scorpionusa.com. And Shinko Tires. Now, Shinko has a tire to suit your needs and riding style without breaking your bank account. So go to shinkotireusa.com and tell them that the Motorcycle Man sent you. And Wild Ass Seats. You can improve your comfort and ability to stay in the saddle longer with a cushion from Wild Ass Seats. So if you are tired of those painful pressure points and fatigue, you go on over to wild-ass.com and get your cushion today. And make sure you tell the real Craig Johnson over there that the Motorcycle Men podcast sent you. And, of course, our good friends over at Tobacco Motorwear. For the best in casual riding gear for men and women, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear. Visit them at TobaccoMotorwear.com, and our listeners will get 10% off your order when you use that coupon code MOTOMEN. Your safety is very worth it. Now, listen, I wear Tobacco Motorwear jeans on their California riding shirt. Great stuff. I don't ride without it, and don't forget they got their... Wonderful gloves, the Roper gloves. Wear those all the time. So go check them out, tobaccomotorwear.com, and get yourself a pair of jeans. It's great. And, of course, Uclear Digital. Uclear helmet communication systems are based on direct feedback from riders, dealers, and industry professionals to be the most advanced weatherproof comm systems ever. So enhance your ride with Uclear's Dynamesh-compatible intercom. They got powerful music and crystal clear phone calls on any road, any trail, on any helmet. Very portable system. I use it. You can't beat the sound quality. Wonderful stuff. To learn more, go to uclearedigital.com and you tell them that the Motorcycle Men podcast sent you. All right. Time now for that interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Motorcycle Men Podcast. This is episode 284, and joining me all the way from the UK, Antonia Bolingbroke-Kent, well, what we're going to call her Ants for the rest of the evening. Antonia, how are you doing? Hi, Ted. I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm so glad you could join me here on the podcast and tell us about your book. So 
For those who don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, in normal times, I'm a travel writer, and I'm a travel writer with a particular love of traveling alone in remote regions, mainly on two wheels, occasionally on three wheels, and quite often on my own two feet as well. I have written three books, I think. Yes, three books. And I present radio programs for BBC Radio 4, and I write various articles for magazines and newspapers and but then in the last year and a half, I haven't really traveled very far. <laughs> so I'm a travel writer who doesn't really travel at the moment. At the, at the moment. Yeah. But you're, you're going to get back to it soon, right? Oh, definitely. I, I yearn for it and dream of it. And I'm constantly poring over maps and looking at dusty tracks in Tajikistan and, and just <laughs> wanting to be back there so much. And, of course, you're going to go by motorcycle next time, right? Well, I hope so. Well, I don't know, either motorbike or horse or donkey, actually. But obviously, for the, pur- <laughs> for the purposes of this podcast, yes, definitely motorbike. <laughs> either way, you got to feed them, right? Got to feed <laughs> them, yeah. I, I yeah, think a donkey way. might be cheaper. I, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, I guess. But uh, let's talk about your book, A Short Ride in the Jungle, uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail by Motorcycle. That was quite an adventure. So when did you do this? I did that adventure back in the mists of time in 2013. So, yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Time flies so quickly. It feels like yesterday, but that was eight years ago. Math has never been my strong point. Really? Wow, that was a long time ago. Now, when did you start that ride and when did you end it? I started it in... March 2013 and I ended it okay. in April 2013 but it had been a long time in the planning and then obviously mm-hmm. I wrote my book afterwards so it felt like the whole thing of dreaming and planning and doing and writing took up the best part of two years wow wow so you haven't been there since 20 is that is, is that was that the last time you were there that was the last time I was there I'd been there in 2012 which is how I came up with the idea which I'll tell you in a minute if you'd like and then I was there in 2013 and then I've never been back yeah I've gone on to do other adventures and write other books and just haven't been back to that part of the world so what you need to do is go back and do the whole thing again oh well (laughs) do it the other direction this time I would love to in some ways that was a trip which really deeply affected me but I remember the trip took me through Vietnam Laos and Cambodia um I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But I remember when I was yeah. leaving Laos and crossing the land border to Cambodia, looking back at the, the gateway to Laos and thinking, I don't think I'll go back because I know if I go back, things would have changed so much that I spend my whole time mourning what was. So I kind of, of course. oh yeah, closed the door on it. It was like that was an extraordinary episode in my life. And that's right. that. Wow. Now, what what... What what was your decision to do this in the first place? Well, I used to be a freelance TV producer and make programs for the BBC, Channel 4, Nat Geo. And in 2012, I was working on a series for the BBC called, World, called World's Most Dangerous Adventures. And in this particular episode, we were taking two female celebrities who shall remain unnamed. Google it. Uh, <laughs> 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 a very... I think I'll have to do that. <laughs> On a very bumpy ride in more ways than I can possibly divulge, down a thousand kilometer section of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And 
during that filming, we were, there was 20 of us. We had doctors and backup crew and, and, and helicopter medic backup and, you know, the whole TV circus. Right. And it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty tough. But during that filming trip, that was when I discovered the Ho Chi Minh Trail and I just thought this is such an extraordinary story and it's disappearing so fast. I'm going to come back and I'm going to ride this alone and I'm going to write a book about it. Wow. Now, did you know about the Ho Chi Minh Trail prior to that visit? I'd heard of it, but I knew nothing about it. I studied history at university and I've always been a real history geek. So a lot of my travels have incorporated my twin loves of history and travel. Um, but the the Vietnam War wasn't something I'd studied. Of course, I'd seen Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. But apart from just knowing the name, I knew nothing about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But I was producing this program for the BBC. And so to produce it, we had to do months of research and do a recce and then do the filming. So I very mm-hmm. quickly learned a lot about it and just thought, this is incredible, this thing. And it's got to be written about before it's too late. You know, it's funny because when I was growing up, uh, I... I grew up through the Vietnam War era, and I do remember on the news reports constantly hearing about what was going on, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail was always and regularly mentioned many, many times. So I, I, I didn't know much about it in, in that way, but I knew it was some sort of route where supplies and ammunition and soldiers and everybody moved north and south all the time. Now, were you aware of that at all? Or I mean, did you have any knowledge of that prior to, like, again, from what you've learned? No, I didn't. No, I, I, I had definitely heard the name, but I knew nothing about it. Uh, but then the more I learned, the more it well, it's, it's just such an amazing story. Oh, my God. Yes, it's amazing. I mean, now you had had, had you ridden motorcycles prior to this? I had. Um, I. Uh, I'm just thinking because I know you can cut it. Do you want me to say a bit more about what the Ho Chi Minh Trail was, or? Uh, yeah, we we can definitely get into it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so, sorry, ask me that again about motorbikes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, well, well, prior to that, this this trip here that you did for for the book, have you ridden prior to that? I had, but not a huge amount. And how I came to motorbikes is a really bizarre story because. Uh, Back in 2006, my best friend from school and I drove a Thai tuk-tuk, you know, those little three-wheeled taxis. We'd driven one from Bangkok to the UK, which is 12,500 miles. Wow. Wow. I know. It was pretty crazy. And uh, it ended up being the the Guinness world record for the longest ever journey on three wheels. (laughs) Really? So you're a world record holder? I'm a world record holder. I've got my certificate just up by my desk. Yeah, <laughs> someone else has broken it since, but we won't we won't dwell on that. But um, when we were getting ready for that trip, which was a huge amount of preparation right. and paperwork, one of the big things was China. And if anyone here has ridden through China, you'll know that it's really tough to get the permission. Really expensive, endless bureaucratic hoops. And we were told that if we wanted to ride a tuk tuk. If we wanted to drive a tuk-tuk through China, we had to have our motorcycle license. And this was February, like three months before we left, and I'd never even considered riding a motorbike before. And suddenly I had to get my test in three weeks. So I did. Wow. Did the, did the tuk-tuk <laughs> trip, 
and then kind of forgot about bikes for a bit until a couple of years later till my um boyfriend now my about to be husband and i were having like a drunken monday lunch as you do and we bought two honda cubs off ebay for 200 as you do (laughs) (laughs) and then we painted these two honda cubs leopard print and zebra print and rode them around the black sea for a laugh and that's really my motorbiking experience before doing this ho chi minh trail trip right Wow. <laughs> so for this trip, you did ride a Honda Cub. I did right? ride a Honda Cub, which is lucky because I didn't have much experience of riding anything else. <laughs> now, was was that your only option or is that what you purposely picked? Um, It was actually, you'll be amazed to know what I purposefully picked, but also... It wasn't some form of extreme self-flagellation. It was it, there was some logic behind my choice because although I was going like two thousand miles over mud and mountains and through jungle, Honda Cubs are really light. So I was going to be on my own riding through remote areas. If I dropped, I mm-hmm. pick it up. They are right. idiot-proof. My mechanical my mechanical knowledge is not great, and they're supposedly indestructible, which I would find out wasn't quite true. And also, I really like riding vehicles which are cheap, simple, and also familiar to the local population. And sure. Southeast yeah. Asia, Honda Cubs ubiquitous. And I thought, A, I'll, I'll be less of an alien riding this little bike, but also people will be able to fix them. So right. that was the reasoning behind my choice and why I didn't ride a CRF 250 or something sensible. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's sensible. Now, it's funny because in the book when you were explaining what you got and what you're writing, uh, was it really was it really pink? It was really really pink. Yeah. Um when now, was that the, was, was that was that what but was that the color that it came in or did you paint it that color? Well, I'm not a particularly girly girl, but I I do like pink mainly because I I think I like pink vehicles because I just think it's ridiculous. <laughs> and I I bought this Honda Cub in Hanoi for, I think it was $300. Um, some friends I'd met there the year before helped me buy it and pimp it. And they said, you know, do you want us to do anything in particular to it? And I just said, just spray it the pinkest pink you can. So I got there and there she was, um, a really lurid pink. But I thought, it's going to make people laugh because it's ridiculous. And also probably no one's going to steal it because they'd be too embarrassed to ride it. <laughs> and and you gave it a name, didn't you? I did. She was called the Pink Panther. I mean, <laughs> had to be. The Pink and Panther. you re- and you referred to it as Panther throughout the whole book. I did. Well, she was. It's a bit like um, Tom Hanks in Castaway with uh, you know Winston, the the football. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, when you're own for when you're on your own for a long time in the jungle, and your only friend is a really moody pink Honda Cub, then of course you're going to talk to it a lot. So. Panther became my friend and my foe. Occasionally, I'd kick her really hard and swear a lot, and other times I'd kiss her. <laughs> so you were having conversations with uh, Panther on your trip. I quite often had conversations with Panther. <laughs> quite often. Um, mainly conversations that went something like, Panther, please, please, can we get to the next village? I will be really nice to you and give you some petrol. <laughs> Just please don't break down again. <laughs> how, how did you do with, uh, with petrol on that trip? Well, the distances were never that great. So in a day, I might be going, I'm trying to think, 
30, 40 miles, if that, but because the roads, oh, really? because the roads were so bad, it would take me a really long time. I mean, on some days I'd be covering two miles an hour um, and wow. pushing the bike and lifting the bike and hauling it through rivers. And it was a bit sort of like rock climbing or orienteering than bike riding sometimes. So wow. it didn't need a huge amount of fuel. Um, and when I did need fuel, every time I'd come to a, a village, even if it was a tiny tribal village in the jungle, they'd be selling fuel in little Pepsi bottles. So I did run out of petrol a few times, but on the whole, I, petrol wasn't a problem. Oh, wow. We're, we're going to talk about the trail in a second here, but I want to talk a little bit more about the bike. How loaded up with supplies and personal belongings and things did you have that bike loaded up? Yeah, it was the ultimate expedition Honda Cub. So I had, I was a really low-key, low-fi trip. So I had the bike and then um, I had some really cheap textile panniers I bought on eBay for like 25 quid, like $40. And um, I then I had a, like a granny shopping basket on the front. And You did not. I did. I went. I you, bumped you the whole way down the hotel trail <laughs> with a granny shopping basket. Yeah, that held my um, tire pump and a few other um, bits and gaffer tape and stuff. Um, and that's all. I had a bum bag, fanny pack, as you call it, which had like, yeah. you know, my GPS and my phone and essentials. But I, I, I took very few clothes. I was really grubby most of the time. But I took my own toolkit. I took a medical kit. I took laptop oh no I, I had a top box I had a top box which was absolutely vital because it was waterproof and it was lockable so in that I put you know my laptop and my camera sure and the paperwork I needed and then my pat you know so I, I didn't have very much but I had enough and I had because there were obviously no ATMs or anything I had to take out all the cash I needed for the trip before I left um, so I had cash hidden in different places all over the bike some of it like sealed in plastic bags and hidden in little compartments wow. and so if someone robbed me they wouldn't get everything hopefully wow so this was not an atm trip by any stretch this was not an atm trip <laughs> All right. uh, so how much weight do you think you added to this poor little bike hmm <laughs> well the panther only weighs probably what 200 pounds tops i think Maybe? panther's about 50 kilos um that's not a lot and i think i probably had about 30 kilos of equipment if if that if that maybe maybe, that, maybe okay. 25 kilos of equipment wow now did you have any trouble with the bike at all along the way did i have any trouble with the indestructible <laughs> honda cub I had an unholy amount of trouble with a bike. Um, I had, but it was indestructible. I mean, yeah, I'd seen this program before where Charlie Borman had tried to destroy a Honda Cub on some Discovery Channel about the greatest motorbike in the world, and he'd thrown it off the top of a skyscraper. He had loaded it up with something like 200 pizzas. He'd run it on vegetable oil. He'd thrown it in a canal. It still worked. So I thought, you know, n nothing can go wrong. <laughs> But none of that clearly was as tough as the Ho Chi Minh Trail because I had four new engine rebuilds over the course of that trip. What? Yeah, yeah. Four engine rebuilds? Yeah, and I think 
it's hard to describe how rough the roads were when I got into so it was Vietnam, Laos, 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 Laos I, I call it Laos and Cambodia okay. and really when I left Vietnam it was goodbye tarmac and it was just this red laterite dirt which when it rained just turned into this orange skating rink um, and when it was dry um, just such rough roads and lots of old um, cobblestones from the Ho Chi Minh Trail 10 mm-hmm. to 20 river crossings a day, really deep inclines and um, downhills. So it was it was really, really rough, tough riding. And the bike just got shaken to bits, basically. <laughs> okay. Now, let's talk about the trail. Tell us about it. Well, you were exactly right, what you said, that it was a military supply route. And it was just that. It mm. was a military supply route that took men and material from... Hanoi to um, to communist from from communist controlled Hanoi to the American backed battlefields of the south. So Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. And the reason it went through Laos was because it had to avoid the DMZ and go th- yes, use the yes. cover of the jungle and the mountains of Laos. And what was so extraordinary about it is it started in 1959 as this single top secret footpath where soldiers would walk for six months to get to the south, carrying just their own weight and medical supplies and rice, and they'd walk barefoot. Wow. And then by the time the communists won in 1975, it was a 12,000-mile network spreading through three countries. And a lot of it was hand-built. So the Americans would bomb one section, and the Vietnamese, a lot of them 19, 20-year-old men and women volunteers, would literally go and hand-dig another section, sort of overnight sometimes. So... America tried very hard to destroy it, but they just couldn't. They, could, they couldn't keep up. They, they couldn't keep up. It was like a hydra-headed beast. You cut off one head, and then five other heads would would sprout up overnight. <laughs> wow. Now, had you considered all the possibilities of what you might encounter on this ride before you took off? I had probably considered them a little too much, yes. Uh, really? Yeah. I mean, I had done a lot of research. I'd spoken to soldiers on both sides who'd uh, fought and worked on the trail. I'd read a hell of a lot of books. I had obviously been there the year before with the BBC. I knew that there were some tigers left, that there were um, large spiders. I don't like spiders. Um, Not that I don't like spiders. I'm just scared of spiders. There were um, a lot of venomous snakes and a lot of UXO, unexploded ordnance. And apart from all that, I had never traveled alone like this before it was my first big solo adventure so i remember in the months before i left i just spent so many sleepless nights imagining all the terrible things that were going to happen to me yeah i can imagine yeah now again you're doing here you are you're preparing for this but you're freaking yourself out over all everything that you may come across mm-hmm. that and that didn't at all change your mind obviously no what I'm pretty determined. If I decide I'm going to do something, I do it. And um, a lot of people say to me, oh, you must be so brave. I I don't think brave is the right word. I, I'm pretty pig-headed and I'm insatiably curious. And my curiosity gets the better of my fear. I really wanted to do this trip and I just wasn't going to let all these fears stop me. That's well. That, that's great features to have, and it's very admirable, I might add. Um, we're as far as it goes for the trail itself and the 
I'll, I'll use the term loosely when I say roads. Um, <laughs> tell us about that. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, so I was in Vietnam for about a week at the beginning, and um, those pre-trip fears very quickly dissolved and just became elation to be on the road. Um, it's often like that, isn't it? Where you, you're afraid of something, and then when you start doing it, you're like, what was I so yeah, exactly. afraid about? This is amazing. Right. And Vietnam, those six days, was really like trail light. It was tarmac. There were hotels. There were places to eat by the roadside. So that was kind of, you know, the easy bit. And then I crossed the mountains into Laos, and that's when it got really gnarly. That's really where the guts of the trail were. And, yeah, as I said before, it just dissolved into these tracks through the jungle. Often they were just footpaths used by the tribal people, which were um, really rutted, really rough, lots of rocks, lots of cobblestones, lots of river crossings. Um, yeah, so roads, not really roads, tracks. Is is that still used today, the, the Ho Chi Minh Trail? Well... As I said, the, the trail ended up being this gargantuan 12,000-kilometer network. And in right. the years since the war has ended, some bits have just grown over. You know, the, jung okay. the jungle's All just right. taken them over. Um, right. And a lot of it is still way too contaminated by UXO to consider doing anything. Sure. Other right. bits of it have roads have been built over, particularly in Vietnam. Some of the main sections of the Ho Chi Minh Trail are now the main highways north to south in Vietnam. And others have just sort of been forgotten. So a, a bit of everything. So I had a lot of different options open to me of which way I could go. But I was using old Vietnamese military maps. And Well, I was just going to ask you that. How did you find any of that? Yeah. So uh, through, through mapping, yeah. Through mapping and through a lot of research and through... There's, there's a handful of serious trail geeks. There was an Australian guy who lived there. There was an American living in Laos. Um, and they'd been really generous with their knowledge and experience and their mapping. And um, so I'd got hold of all these old maps and compared them with modern maps. And uh, yeah, it was pretty complicated. So I kind of... I have to imagine... Well, I have to imagine you got lost a couple times. I got lost a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and getting lost and having to do a three-point turn was not something you wanted to do too often because there was so much unexploded ordnance. And if I had to do a, a turn in the jungle, I had to be really, really careful that my wheels weren't going off the edge of the track because there's so many unexploded bombs there. It was too dangerous. Well, let's talk about that. I, I understand that that's a, a problem there, and it's to this day in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Now, did you have encounters with this? It's a huge problem um, because of the importance of the Ho Chi Minh Trail and America knew that the only way they could win the war was to cut the trail. Um, the U.S. Air Force unleashed what's still the biggest bombing campaign in history. So Laos was bombed on average every eight minutes for almost a decade. And it's... That's... Yes, yeah, mad. Wow. It's absolutely mad. And it's still the most bombed country per capita on Earth. And... Tens of thousands of people have died in Indochina since the war from unexploded ordnance, and still, like, I don't know what the exact stats are now, but it's still hundreds a year. And um, farmers going out and plowing their fields, kids going out and accidentally picking up a cluster bomb, thinking it's a ball. So it was very present during my journey, and I was supporting a charity called Minds Advisory Group, trying to raise awareness and money. And actually, I did 
uh, yeah, I had a, I had a very close encounter with a cluster bomb walking through the jungle one day with two former American fighter pilots who I'd met up with. And uh, we very nearly trod on a cluster bomb. Uh, we had a near miss. Wow. Mm. That, um, how did you sleep at night knowing that you had, at any moment, this could happen to you? Um, <laughs> I don't think I did sleep very well on that trip. <laughs> 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 it was partly that. It was partly the brothels i was staying in it was partly the logging lorries going past it was partly the heat you know yeah it wasn't conducive to good sleep <laughs> wow now statistically speaking is there any record or knowledge of exactly how much unexploded ordinance is there and how many years they think it'll take to clear it no one knows exactly but mines advisory group have really good um have really good information on their website and sure. i know that in laos I think I'm correct in saying that it was two million tons of ordnance were dropped on Laos during the war, which is more than was dropped by all sides during the entire Second World War. And yeah, it's it's like it's completely mind boggling, the stats and around 30 percent of the ordnance didn't explode. Um, And it was this was often cluster bombs because cluster cluster bombs. um, uh, they spin basically and then they activate and a lot of them didn't activate properly. So they hit the ground, they didn't blow up, but all it takes is someone to, you know, a buffalo to kick it or a kid to pick it up and then it could activate and, and blow up. Um, so there are still huge amounts of UXO live in the ground across the whole region. And uh, I'm afraid, I know this is an American audience, but I'm afraid the American government is just not doing enough to, to clear up the mess. Well, you know what it is? It's, it's not in their yard anymore. Yeah, I know. And that's that's and that's the thinking, and unfortunately, that that's it's it's a broad landscape because I, I'm pretty sure that uh, it's not just the United States that views it that way as well. You know, it's it's over there. We'll let them take care of it. It's forgotten. I yeah, I know. It's yeah, but what's, exactly. What's crazy is that every year, several times a year, the um, U.S. send teams of men to look for. Um, MIA, you know, bodies of airmen right. soldiers who were never recovered, and they spend millions of pounds sending these teams in by helicopter, and and then if they find even a tooth, they fly them back to Hawaii to be forensically examined, and so obviously very important to bring the lost men men back, but they're not spending enough money on, you know, the the, the UXO. Right. It's it's sort of I, I get out it. of balance. I get it. Wow, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. As far as it goes for your trip, ex- ex- excluding the unexploded ordinance, what was the worst part of that journey for you? Ah, uh, the deforestation. And that is oh, the reason. Oh, really? Yeah, that is the reason I don't think I could go back to Laos because Laos is this fantastically beautiful country that used to be called the land of a million elephants. And it's mountains and it's jungle. It's the stuff of, of, of dreams, really. But... Mm-hmm. The Lao government in the last, I don't know, 20 years have discovered it's, it's like a poor man who suddenly realizes he's sitting on a treasure chest because they've got so much natural resources and they are just the, the scale of logging there is is terrifying. And wow. all these logs are being cut down and Ill- illegally exported across the border to Vietnam, ending up as being falsely certified as sustainable and ending up as you know garden tables in America and the UK and it was really depressing. Wow. The, the, the scale of deforestation, the devastation I saw was... 
I mean, to me, as far as it goes on how it affects humans, I don't care. But how it affects the wildlife is what affects me. That that I can only imagine what that does to the environment for them. Oh, yeah. I mean, often I would stop the bike to listen because here I was. I was in the middle of the jungle just to soak in the experience. And every time I heard the whine of chainsaws, I, I didn't hear gibbons or birds. I heard chainsaws. And... And I had been there the year before with the BBC, and sometimes I came to a place where I, I knew I'd been with the BBC, and I was like, this was forest a year ago. Now now it's nothing. It's just a burning, blistered mass of tree stumps. It's like it's like the war again. So they, they would cut these trees down, and so nothing has grown back since, or they've done nothing with the land aside from strip it of its lumber? They are just stripping it, because the wood is really valuable. It's teak, it's yellow balao, you know, things which are worth thousands of dollars a square meter so it's right. huge money you're talking about oh wow yeah that's a sh- that's a sh- that's heartbreaking actually oh it, um, it, there were days when i would just sob i just was like i this breaks my heart and that's why i can't go back to Laos because i couldn't go back there and be like 20 you know 10 years yeah. ago this was virgin forest yeah I, well you, you don't you don't know what it's like now for you know there could be condominiums up there now <laughs> Well, I think a lot of it's being cleared for mining and, and for dams, gold mining, oh, bauxite wow, mining. Really, that's horrible. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, as far as it goes for on the better side, yeah. do you have any <laughs> yeah. most uh, any most memorable parts of the trip? Oh, the whole trip was so memorable. As I said, it was my first big solo adventure. It was such a powerful story and the things i was seeing and hearing made such a deep impact on me so sure i feel like the whole experience it was six weeks in total is really seared on my memory um yeah so it was all really memorable but there was one very memorable experience in cambodia where it was the only time on any of my adventures where i thought that i might not make it uh, the one part of your book that stands out in my mind, and maybe it's that part uh, where your little panther got stuck in the mud so bad that you had to leave it and go get help. Yes, we are talking about the very same day um, <laughs> oh on very aptly named Mondulkiri Death Highway in Cambodia, which is now a Chinese-funded tarmac highway. But then it was just this empty track through the forest nothing no people no shops no cell reception nothing and it was bad and we got stuck wow Uh, and you also described that a uh, a truck did come along and try to pull you out and then they eventually just left you anyway yeah it's a long complicated story and probably the best way is people read my book (laughs) (laughs) of course um, no, because it would take me ages to tell it, and it's quite convoluted. But um, I did meet some people. They were the only people I met all day. And long story short, they promised to help me. I gave them half my water supply because we were all very low on water. They promised to help me, and then they buggered off. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> how, where and how did you sleep, eat, and bathe along the way? Well, that night, as I did on quite a few nights, I ended up sleeping in my jungle hammock in the jungle. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that was one of the things I had in my panniers was this very neat jungle hammock. So I slept in that quite a few times. And otherwise, I would just rock up in these 
tiny towns and villages and there would nearly always be what was called a government guest house which would just be the most putrid collection of concrete walls and festering damp <laughs> disease you can imagine and really it was a brothel um, because <laughs> the only other people there were the girls and the clients who were mainly loggers and they never knew how much to charge me because everyone else was paying by the hour and I confused the hell out of the men and they thought I was a you know a visiting attraction on my pink bike. So I'd have guys trying to get into my room at night and offer me money and yeah, it was kinda of hairy at times. Wow. <laughs> I, I I mean I remember you describing a few of the places that you had stayed in and that you that you opted for no other reason to stay in. Um and I was just shivering in my own skin thinking about it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, I look back on that trip, and I'm sure lots of people do this when they look back on big trips, and I, I honestly think, was that me? How did I do that? Because I feel like I became a different person to do that trip. And I feel like I... I don't know. I, I can't think of a way to put it. I had to dig really deep. And I feel like I found parts of me that I didn't know existed before. And when I think right. now, yeah, sleeping in a brothel in the middle of the jungle in a room that was hopping with frogs. not I don't mind the frogs, but covered in used condoms and the, you yeah. know, the men trying to get into my room. And I, I wasn't scared, weirdly. I wasn't scared. I never, once I started the journey, apart from that day on the Mondalkiri Death Highway, I, I never felt scared. I just... Right. You know, when people tried to get into my room or whatever, I just thought that they were just trying it on. I didn't feel that I was ever really in any danger. Mm -hmm. Wow. So speaking of, of people, I, how were the people that you encountered along the way? Um, people were either incredibly kind or dumbstruck or they ran away. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> run away <laughs> yeah why would they run away oh gosh well so on the whole really <laughs> kind and then i would be riding through these villages and wave at people and the kids would just be like jaws on the floor not knowing what the hell this apparition was because uh, this was an area of Laos where they never see westerners and if they do see a westerner it's someone turning up it's, a, it's an aid worker in a in a white toyota yeah. land, land cruiser and then people ran away on at least three or four occasions when i was on these right in the boonies on these really remote jungle tracks surrounded right. by bomb craters from the war still bits of bombed out truck from the war and i would bump into uh, women, tribal women who were collecting bamboo in the forest and they would see me and I had a flip flip front lid so they could see my face, they'd see this pink bike and they would just leg it in terror into the forest because I suppose they had, I just had no idea what they were looking at and I wow. spoke to quite a few people about it afterwards and I said well, you know, why? And they said well the people there are animists and they have a very string, very strong belief in spirits which are called fee and they may well have thought you were some evil fee appearing out of the jungle. They, they, what you were wasn't in their world really? view, so they just ran for it. Wow, I, I, I find that very odd. <laughs> but again, different culture. It's, right? it's you know, never happened not, to wow. me. Never, it's never happened to me anywhere else. Never. Wow, I, that's amazing. 
Uh, what about food and water? Was that was that a problem? Food and water. Oh, you asked me before about bathing, and um, yeah, it didn't really happen. Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't no rivers. Shower. I didn't have a shower in six weeks, but occasionally I'd find a bucket of cold water and just wash and shove my hair in a bucket of cold water. Um, wasn't looking my best, and uh, which was all the more surprising that people offered me money for you know a quick in the behind the <laughs> brothel. Uh, um, food and water. Is there a shower involved? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, food uh, well i'm vegetarian and that was pretty difficult i i really lived on sticky rice and beer and in those days i used to smoke cigarettes so i smoked a lot of cigarettes and <laughs> i don't think that's really on the uh, you know that uh, that that <laughs> that that list of foods you should be eating cigarettes is not on no, there i don't think not really nutritional <laughs> yeah no. and then water Gosh, before nowadays, you see, I always travel with a water to go filter bottle, which means I can just yeah, keep sure. up out of any yeah. puddle and drink it. But those days, I, yeah. I didn't. I think I just this is terrible now. I bought plastic bottles of water and just traveled with always about five liters on me, which just seems absurd now and very unethical. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. Um, now, but yeah, as, as far as it goes for fuel, you said you had no problem getting that along the way. Um, but general maintenance for the bike, you, you got that, you were able to get that along the way too, because it's, well, it's a Honda Cub and everybody knew the bike, right? Everyone knew the bike and this turned out to be so fortunate. But on the other hand, if I'd had a GS or a CRF 250 or something, maybe it wouldn't have broken down so much. But the first time it broke down was in this tiny village in the middle of Laos and the bike had been making this terrible sound, like it had swallowed a bag of nails and finally it just threw in the towel completely and I thought what the hell am I going to do but the more I've traveled alone the more I found that just weird things happen and whenever you need help just someone or something appears to help you things happen right and I stood in this village and I thought what am I going to do and this guy came up who miraculously spoke a tiny bit of English and he said oh there's a mechanic just down the road and even in this tiny village there was a Vietnamese mechanic working and he just took the whole thing apart, rebuilt the engine in 24 hours. I think it cost me $40. Um, <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. And um, you, well, of course, everyone listening knows Ted Simon and Ted Simon's great set, yes. The Interruptions Are the Journey. And this always happens because whenever I broke down, it meant I hung out with a mechanic for 24 hours. I quite often stayed with his family. I'd find out their story. I'd learn about the place. So... It was just part of the adventure. Wow. Yeah, that's it. Uh, what what is it they say that uh, if nothing happens, not, it's not an adventure? Yeah. This was <laughs> definitely an adventure. <laughs> that's good. Now, did you expect this ride to take as long as it did? I did. I had estimated it was going to take roughly six weeks. And that's, that's roughly what it took. Um, oh, okay. It was a about 2000 miles um so yeah it, it, it yeah it, i i think i it, it took approximately what i'd guessed all right were you glad when it was over well it's that mix isn't it this heady mix of yeah. emotions i was yeah 
really relieved that I was still alive. I'd had quite a few near misses with the, the Mondalkiri Death Highway with UXO. I was very nearly squashed by a bus about a kilometre from the end. So I was glad I was going home not dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> but on the other hand, I was really sad that this fantastic adventure was coming to an end. This thing I'd been so deeply immersed in that affected me so much. I, I didn't want it to end. Oh, sure, I understand. Uh, how long before you got your first shower when you got to your end did you... Uh... <laughs> oh, gosh. So I finished in Ho Chi Minh City, which was Saigon, which was obviously where the, sure. the trail had finished. And I treated myself to a hotel, which I think cost massive sum of $20 a night. And my room didn't have any windows, but I had a shower. So I had a shower. That's good. <laughs> and went out at, to a club that night with some like friend of a friend in Saigon and we drank loads of gin and tonic and ended up doing tequila shots with all these Russians. <laughs> okay, well, I guess the shower helped that out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right how many total miles did you do uh, from start to finish? I think it was about 2,000 miles. I don't have the exact figure. But okay. I, it was about and 2,000 how, miles. Um, but as and, I how, said, and how many days? How many days total were you on the, the trail road? Oh, now you're asking me, Ted. Um, six, <laughs> sixty? Uh, no. How many? Well, six weeks. It was six weeks. My maths is terrible. Oh, six weeks total. Okay. Wow. Wait, that's 50 six days, weeks. is it? 50 days? Yeah, well, yeah. 60, 42 days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was about 42, 45 days. Wow. Yeah. Damn. With quite a few days would you do it, for breakdowns. No, would, what, would you do it again? In some ways, I would absolutely love to do it again. But in other ways, I wouldn't, particularly because of the deforestation in Laos. Right. And because I know that the area has changed a huge amount. And I would just be sure. one of those boring people who was like, when I was last here, yeah, this was all different and i think i want to preserve it in my mind as the ho chi Minh trail that existed then yeah because if you recall ted simon did his journey again mm. many years later and he did another book about it and um mm. he seemed disappointed yeah i think there's a real danger in retracing trips and because everything's going to have changed of course and sure yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do it again. It was a really special trip. It is a trip that I still think about a lot. I, I, I'm still obsessed with the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the Vietnam War. I'm reading a, a novel at the moment called The Sympathizer about the war. I, okay. I, 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 it's such a fascinating subject. I will never bore of it, but yeah. I, never I will never tire of it, but I, I don't want to go back. Yeah. Did you take a lot of pictures? I took... A lot of pictures. I wrote my diary obsessively, at least twice a day. I made audio notes. I took a bit of footage. Yeah, I, I recorded it as, as best I could. Yeah, and all of this can be seen on your website, yes? Uh, some pictures on my website. So my website is theitinerant.co.uk, and there are some pictures on there. And obviously the whole story is in my book, A Short Ride in the Jungle. And Right. I wrote the book. The book came out in 2014, and then I recorded the audio book last year. It was a great thing to do in lockdown. Yeah. And so the audio book came out in October. So um, 
you can listen to that. It's great. I tell you what, I, I <clears throat> excuse me. I'm a huge fan of audiobooks because I'm always I love books, period. But audiobooks are great for me because I'm always on the move. And to to just be able to whatever I'm doing to have that book in my ear and I love to hear the author tell me the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I don't I don't mind so much when uh, another a narrator is is hired to read the story. But I always appreciate it more when the author is doing it mm. because it's coming right from the author's voice, from their experience. Mm. And it was just wonderful. I absolutely enjoyed your narration of the book. It was fantastic. Um, as far as it goes for uh, motorcycle travels, you got anything else in plan? Oh, well, I have a travel business as well. And um, obviously not a lot of travel in the last few years. We specialize in travel in the Silk Road region. Mm-hmm. Next year, which was postponed from this year, which was postponed from last year, I'm co-leading a trip in Tajikistan with Elspeth Beard, who I'm sure. Oh, great! Yeah, you know, so Elspeth is fantastic. I had her on the show not too long ago. She is fantastic, and yeah. I've been really looking forward to that for a long time now. But it's we were originally going to do it as an all-women trip, but then we decided actually, like, we don't want to do all women or all men. We we wanted to mix it up, so we said half the places were for women and it's worked brilliantly because we we've got yeah five ladies five men i think about half the people are from america and um, yeah. we are all really looking forward to doing that so that's my next most bike trip that's next may tajikistan and beyond okay. that i'm just kind of waiting to see what happens and when we can travel again and form yeah. any plans all right is, is you going to do another solo adventure at any point Definitely. So just before, so since uh, since my Short Ride in the Jungle book, I've done two big solo expeditions. I did one in um, the northeast Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh, which is eastern Himalayas, and that was on a locally bought hero motorcycle. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so Indian-made 150cc bike. Nice. Really great little bike. Um, really underrated. It cost me £300. Um, it never went wrong. It was incredible. All I did was change the oil. Um, Panther could learn a few lessons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I went back to northeast India just before COVID. So, as I said, end of um, 2019, and I spent two months riding through the mountains of Nagaland in northeast India on the same bike. Oh, are we going to see a book from that? I, I haven't. I'm not doing a book about it for various reasons. No. Um, but I did a radio program for BBC4. I've written lots of articles about it. I've got a big article coming out actually this month in the US magazine Overland Journal. Oh, okay. Great. You can read, wow. about, read about it in that. Yeah. All right. Uh, so how can uh, my listeners learn more about you and your travels? Uh, well, um, they can look at my website, theitinerant.co.uk, or much better, they can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at AntsBK. And I would mm-hmm. love it if people bought my audiobook, which is on um, Audible, on Apple, on Google Play. And of course, if you subscribe to Audible, you get it free, basically. So win- yeah. win-win for everyone. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Do it. Yeah, do, do it. it. Any closing comments or advice to anybody who w- wishing to visit Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia? Oh well, I feel like my advice might be a bit outdated now because I was there no, eight years ago. Really? But I think 
they are such interesting welcoming countries and even though it's changed the story of the Ho Chi Minh Trail is if you're interested in history you love travel you love biking it's it's a fantastic adventure it's just it's thrilling it's exciting it's it's everything you want from an adventure so just go and also the the Pink Panther still lives in Hanoi um oh does it really she occasionally gets taken for spins in the mountains so if you're in Hanoi Get in touch with my friend Kung from Kung's Motorbike Adventure, and uh, he's got the Pink Panther. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised you didn't just buy it and bring it home with you. Oh, do you know, I I have thought about it so many times, and I've talked to Kung, and I've talked about costs, and I've looked at shipping. And because I live in the middle of Bristol, and I've already had two motorbikes stolen from outside my house, um, including my Zebra Print Honda Cub, which broke me. Uh, that's what stopped me. I just thought I couldn't cope with bringing the Pink Panther back from Vietnam for someone to steal her. So, oh, wow. better she stays in Vietnam. All right. Well, good. Well, Ants, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on a podcast. It was wonderful to talk to you about this. I had a great time listening to your stories, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Ted, thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. I hope your coll- collarbone gets better soon. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. Motorcycle Man Podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. So if you want to participate in something that actually makes a difference to the people and the lives that cancer affects, go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. And the Gold Star Ride Foundation here, helping the families of fallen soldiers. If you'd like to be a part of a great cause and get some heartfelt miles in, go to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. Thank you for joining me and Ants here in the V-Twin Cafe on the Motorcycle Men Podcast, where we talked about her book, A Short Ride in the Jungle. Right. Links to Antonia's site will be in the show notes and, of course, a direct link on the Motorcycle Men website. Don't forget to go on over to Ride with Ted YouTube channel and watch some of the many videos that we have there, including Ted Shed and Ride with Ted videos. And, of course, T-shirts, sweatshirts, and other apparel cannot be purchased on the shop page of the website. So that's MotorcycleMen.us. Make sure you get on over there. And for the rest of the Motorcycle Men team, thanks for listening. And remember, boys and girls, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Ride safely, kids. <laughs>